Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're very pleased to have with us Allison Weir, the Executive Director of If Americans Knew, and she's also President of the Council for the National Interest. We've been following Allison and her work for a number of years. I had the pleasure of hearing her for the first time in Washington, D.C. three years ago at Occupy APAC, and she made a, a very significant presentation there to the assembled, I think there were about 300 people there. And for those that are not aware, we'd like to first start out, there has been a very discouraging thing that's happened here in the pro-Palestinian movement that's very disconcerting to us here, particularly at We Hold These Truths, is that when one of our members gets attacked for a spurious reason, so why don't we open up just a little bit of your background for the folks that uh, may not know about your work, Allison. And I also might mention that Allison is the author of a very powerful book entitled Against Our Better Judgment, The Hidden History of How the U.S. Was Used to Create Israel. And I think maybe maybe you can shed some light on what has happened was the book you wrote did that play in what happened to you here recently Allison because it appears to be very successful as far as sales and reach and so this is a most unusual occurrence welcome Allison hi thank you yes many people feel that these recent attacks on me are very much related to the book the book is doing extremely well, happily. We've sold over 18,000 copies. On Amazon, it has, I think, over 270 customer reviews. Almost all of them give it five stars. And the reviews say things like eye-opening, must-read, every American should read this, new information I have never known before. So it's getting a very, very positive reception. And I think that those with a mixed agenda on Israel-Palestine don't want these facts to get out. That's quite clear. And, of course, hardcore Israel apologists especially don't be new to expect that. But the sad thing, and I've been aware of this for many years, but I tried to prevent taking actions that would be divisive, distracting, because there's so much very important work for us all to do to oppose the Israeli oppression of Palestinians and the violence and wars that keep going on in the Middle East, largely driven because of Israel. It's very central to all of that. So there's so much work to do that I have always tried not to be distracted into these internal divisive kinds of controversies and conflicts. But I've always been aware of people, some of them quite prominent, in the movement, the Palestine Solidarity Movement, who seem to have very mixed agendas and very incomplete attachment to the quest for justice, for example. Um, just to give my own background for people that don't know who I am, 15 years ago, I knew really very little about Israel-Palestine. I was 
at that time the editor of a small newspaper in Northern California, writing about the local schools and fishing fleet, et cetera. I didn't, and don't happen to be Jewish or Arab or Muslim or Palestinian. And so like most people, I had never focused on that issue. But then when the second intifada began, and that just means uprising, I finally got curious about it, and I thought, well, I'll just follow the news coverage. My own newspaper was only local. So this was just out of curiosity after work. I decided I would really pay attention to the news coverage on Israel-Palestine just to learn what it was about. And when I did that, I quickly noticed that the the news coverage was very one-sided. It was extremely Israel-centric. Since I wanted the whole story, I started going on the Internet, was able to read the media from the Middle East itself, both Palestinian and Israeli and, and other media there, and also read human rights reports from individuals that were living there from the Red Cross and various international NGOs, and discovered a level of violence being committed against the Palestinian population, men, women, and children, that was way beyond what the U.S. media were reporting, that seemed to me largely covering up what was actually going on. I followed the news coverage for a while more, for several months. I started to look into the issue more and more. I was extremely shocked at what I felt was really one of the most pervasive and significant cover-ups I had ever seen. And I've seen many. We've seen corporate cover-ups, many of them. We've seen American governmental cover-ups, many of them. I've always opposed those things. And here seemed to be one that has lasted longer and spanned the political spectrum. And I think that's significant because many of us are liberals and progressives, and we think it's just the right wing that's covering things up. But I discovered that among the left and among progressives, this was equally covered up. So after a few months of this, I decided it seemed so significant that I quit my job in Sausalito, California, and I traveled over as a freelance reporter to the Palestinian territories to see for myself what was going on. In early 2001, in the middle of the violence, I traveled around Gaza and the West Bank. I saw children whipped and shot. I saw entire residential neighborhoods that were completely bullet riddled from Israeli attacks. And by the way, this was before any rockets had been fired from Gaza, which is what the media always tell us is the reason. But it's not, because I saw that before rockets had been fired. And this is also several years before Hamas was elected. You know, Americans are led to believe, oh, this is because Hamas, um, because they're firing rockets against poor, victimized Israel. And they discovered firsthand it was the opposite. I was saying this before either of those things had happened. Israel has one of the top, most powerful militaries in the whole world. The Palestinian population virtually does not have a military. It has a few, but it has really very few armaments. It has resistance fighters who have very few arms. Some of them are armed. But, you know, it's enormously David versus Goliath. And Israel is Goliath. So when I came back, I started an organization called If Americans Knew. IfAmericansNew.org. The goal then and is 
to tell every single American that we possibly can the real facts about what is going on in Palestine, what Israeli forces are doing, and increasingly, as I learned an additional aspect of all of this, about the Israel lobby, this very powerful special interest lobby in the United States that largely influences and in many cases really dominates U.S. policies on the Middle East. So I've been doing that now for about 14 years. I've written many articles. I've given speeches all over the country and have been invited to give them in other parts of the world as well. I've written a book about the history of how the special relationship, as it's called, was created between Israel and the United States. It's thoroughly cited. I have The book is over half footnotes, half citations. So everything in there, people can look at my source and evaluate for themselves whether they feel it is a reliable source or not. I think all of the information I have is completely confirmed. People can read the book and decide for themselves. But what has gone on through the years but has escalated following the publication of my book has been sniping within the movement to work for justice in Palestine. From the beginning of the time I began working on this, there were some groups that were significant, such as Jewish Voice for Peace, that really did not want to talk about the Israel lobby. They largely denied its significance. They did not want to talk or acknowledge Palestinians' right to return to their home, which is a human right without exception for everyone, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, for nationality, but Jewish Voice for Peace did not believe in that and did not uh, that and did not like individuals such as myself that did. They also did not like people to learn the facts about the number of Israel partisans who were very significant in pushing the U.S. into the war against Iraq, a massively tragic war both for people in the region and for many Americans that served over there that were either killed or came back maimed and often mutilated. This has been a tragic war from every direction, as I said, both for others abroad, for Americans as well. It has depleted our economy. And a major factor, many excellent books document that is the decisive factor in the, the reason the U.S initiated this war and attacked Iraq was because of these neoconservatives in the U.S. government who are very, very devoted to Israel and were taking this action, they felt, on behalf of Israel to protect Israel by taking out one of its so-called potential enemies. Iraq was no enemy at that time, but it was a first world country and could have become an enemy, so Israel has long had a policy of divide and conquer. This is written in many Israeli documents and preventing anyone from the region to become powerful enough to challenge them. Most of all, to prevent anyone in the region from becoming powerful enough to protect Palestinians and to defend Palestinians' human rights. So they have attacked Lebanon a number of times. They managed to get the United States to buy off Egypt by massive aid programs. And similarly with Jordan, we have massive aid projects 
the Jordan, so that Jordan would recognize Israel and largely the government would abandon the Palestinians. This is what's been going on. I certainly had no idea about any of this, and I think most Americans today have little idea about what's going on, that we give Israel over, well over $8 million per day of our tax money. It's probably, in reality, it's much closer to $10 million of our tax money. So within this growing movement for justice in Palestine, for peace, there have been individuals who did not want key parts of that information to get out to others. So there were whispering campaigns that have escalated with my book saying that I am, quote, anti-Semitic, that I am, quote, now the latest thing is to say that I'm racist. I'm not young. I have a long life history. I have many actions in my life history of opposing bigotry of every kind. I have many actions of specifically taking part in the civil rights movement. I was arrested taking part during a civil rights demonstration. I've written articles along those lines. So all of this is completely bogus. I'm not a racist. I'm not anti-Semitic. I can clearly prove both of those. People who know me know that's the case. And yet there are these whispering campaigns to try to marginalize me, to prevent, most of all, to prevent people from bringing me to speak because then other people would learn the facts that I can give them and would also learn about the book. The latest incarnation of all of this occurred in, during the past year when Jewish Voice for Peace, no surprise given the history of that organization. Let me just mention that many members of Jewish Voice for Peace are fully committed and principled individuals. Some chapters around the country, no doubt, are fully committed and principled. But the leadership put together a dossier about me that misrepresents many, many facts about me, misrepresents things I have done, and is basically a happy job. These are not honest mistakes. This was done quite intentionally, clearly and obviously, to attack me and to attack if Americans do. Following that, the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation, not surprised that's what it's named, because it was founded by people that had no problem with Zionism as such and had no problem with what Israel did in 1947-48, but wanted to really just only talk about the West Bank and Gaza, not the fundamental principles of injustice that are at the core of this issue. Since that time, these people in the organization have appeared to expand their focus, but there's been little action to show that. But anyway, this organization called the U.S. Campaign to End the Israeli Occupation is very close to Jewish Peace, very influenced. There's a lot of over overlap there. So then they sort of conducted an inquisition of if Americans knew. They took up the McCarthy-like attack that JDP had initiated, repeated what were largely, by that time, discredited accusations against me and against if Americans knew in general, and added a few additional, also bogus, accusations against us. This was done on the basis of a, quote, anti-racist policy that was put in place in 2013. 
Now, this group pretends to be a coalition, but in reality, it is not. It's a corporation. It has a board of directors. It has a president. And largely behind the scenes, they're very significant in what's done. But there is also a steering committee. So between the steering committee and the board of directors, they put in place a policy about, quote, anti-racism. You know, we're all against racism. So I, I really don't know anybody who's for racism. I suppose such people exist, but I'm very opposed to all kinds of racism. So it sounds like a good thing. But what was very interesting is they refused to include Zionism among the types of racism that would be taboo to members within the organization. So when they tried to come up with this brand new policy in 2013, an unnecessary policy, everybody else wanted them to be working on the real work. They're supposed to be monitoring legislation, new bills that are coming up, coming up with informational research that member groups could use around the country. Instead, they were putting time into coming up with a, quote, policy about racism. Then when they sent it out to members, many people opposed it, said it should include Zionism, as uh, certainly if they're going to have it at all, it should include the major form of racism that all of the member groups should be focused on, which is Zionism. This is an extremely virulent form of racism and one of the most powerful ones going on today and the specific issue that this group is supposed to be focused on. Despite pushback, despite many people disagreeing, they put it in place. With that came a so-called process by which they would be able to expel someone. Not surprisingly, that then was used to expel if Americans knew and to expel me. You know, they came up with a long, very foolish, unsupported interrogation of us, repeating accusations, making up new accusations, misrepresenting things, claiming I was associated with websites that their own organization had articles on, but for some reason it was bad that mine had been posted on those websites. You know, it's ludicrous and bizarre. We answered it thoroughly. We made public what was being done to us. And then some other people, outraged at what was going on, initiated a petition, an open letter, to the U.S. campaign and to other activists opposing these attacks and defending its Americans view and me. This petition has been astounding. I think I saw that it has 1,400 names and has extremely important people from around the world, in the U.S., elsewhere, in Palestine itself, have signed this statement against what the campaign was doing. Among the signatories are Richard Falk, professor of international law. He was a special rapporteur in Occupy Palestine. And Wright is a well-known peace activist, retired U.S. Army colonel, former U.S. diplomat. Dr. Madison Kia is a professor at at the Bethlehem University, a very, very respected leader in the Palestine movement. Hetty Epstein is a Holocaust survivor, very, very active speaker and activist. They have on here Aaron Gandhi, I see, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. They have Dr. Khalil Nakba, an important author in Palestine himself and was 
has been a leader of the Palestinian student movement when he was a student. John Whitbeck, Edward Peck, is another person, a very respected former ambassador who has worked, is working for peace. So there's this amazing petition. Many people are now seeing that some individuals and some groups they had trusted that they felt were committed on this issue are not. So it's a bit of a litmus test to see what people are doing, and, and many people are learning something about what's actually going on and the questionable motivations and agendas of some of the people that are very prominent in this movement. Thank you so much for that update, Allison. I think it's very curious that the, one of the charges that Jewish Voice for Peace made was, went back some five years ago when you appeared on some radio station. And Chuck Carlson has actually appeared on that radio station. I know you're in the business to educate people, and you're going to get the forums where people will listen to you. And so that, to me, is just unbelievable that people can fall for this guilt by association and, and the name calling and and those are getting kind of old hat anti-Semitism and all this kind of things that are slung on people. I'd like to open up to the question of Allison. Allison, this is Chuck Carlson. Why now? My friend Craig asked that question last time we discussed your situation. Why did they do this right now? And the reason I asked that question is that the Anti-Defamation League has had a dossier on you for a long, long time, going back many years, just like they have on many of us, where they have essentially followed us, kept track of what we do, written down where we appeared, made a sort of a dossier that was available. But all of a sudden, they come out at you through an organization that we've had very good success with. We know people in Phoenix, Arizona, Denver, Colorado, California, who are members of Jewish Voice for Peace, who we don't think would do this, and who are very, very helpful to us and would be very sympathetic to you, and I'm sure you know many yourself. So how did how is this pressure brought about on Jewish Voice for Peace that would cause that organization to put pressure on another organization that's supposed to be a coalition, and then attack you right now at this time when you are, maybe I'm answering my own question, when you're being so successful. You are really being very successful. As you say, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is coming out now, that they're reaching back four or five years for these very obscure incidents that are being blown way out of proportion, which many people see that they're being, being blown way out of proportion. I've given hundreds, probably, of radio interviews of all sorts, all over the country, public access, TV interviews, etc. I suspect the large majority are progressive organizations and radio stations. Probably the three radio stations that I've been asked to be interviewed on most often and have appeared on most often are very progressive ones, KPFA in Berkeley, KPFK in Los Angeles, and KPU in Portland, Oregon. So why did they talk out a little obscure radio station? I had really, not even a radio station, an internet, some sort of internet program that probably has a dozen listeners until they made it a big thing. And why would they do that? How would they even have the time to spend on that? And what a number of people point out is this is very much like the whole 
ADL spying apparatus that you've just described that follows monitors, activists like myself, people that are, you know, in my case, just trying to get the facts out, monitors our every move. No doubt they will listen to this, as will apparently JVP and the U.S. campaign. Look for something I may have said wrong, or so far they haven't come up with that. They've come up with something, oh, I should have said something that I didn't say. You know, this is what's going on. So we know that the ADL are doing that with, with us. What is very revealing is to find that the U.S. campaign and JVP are either doing the same thing. Either they are acquiring these minute dossiers about solo activists, or they are getting this information from the ADL or from the drill itself. Either consciously they know that's the connection that is there, and I think that's entirely possible, or somebody is feeding it to them and they're calling for it. Now, if it was the latter, if this was just a mistake by someone there, why would they so intentionally misrepresent things? You know, you and I and, and many people know that what Israel partisans consistently do is they don't attack what we actually say and write. They misrepresent it, they exaggerate it, and then they attack that. That's exactly what the campaign and JVP are doing with me in almost all of their accusations. So it's a very strange and I feel a very suspicious phenomenon what's going on now. And again, it's only a few people that I feel are at the root of all of this. Other people are badly gullible in ways that they should not be. But some people are gullible and will believe people that they feel they can trust. And I'm afraid in some cases their trust has been deeply misplaced and misused. But it's important to point out that I really almost always try to say JVP leaders because I don't think this represents the majority of members. Many of them have written to us in sympathy, in support, in outrage at what the JVP leaders have done. Quite a few people that were members of JVP around the country have now quit JVP. A number of people that were donating to JVP and to the campaign have said they will no longer donate to them and said we'll give the money to us. So this time people are standing up and saying it is time for this to stop. And it's very exciting to see that part of what's going on. This is Dina. Um, as a Palestinian, Allison, I'm hearing you speak here in Arizona. I'm very glad to hear that your book is selling more because that's a great reaction to the unfortunate events that have occurred to you. I hope that you continue to do what you're doing. I would like to say, like you said, if it's the leadership of Jewish Voice for Peace, I truly also have followed them and, and love their work and hope they continue to support the Palestinians in addition to the, and the Israeli occupation. They've done great work. So I'm hoping that this fiasco that has occurred between all of you and the, and the uh, witch hunt that they've done on you, I hope it ends, actually, because we have far more important things to do and to end the occupation and to show what's happening over there. So I'm sorry you're going through this, and I support you strongly, and I hope you continue doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. I agree with you. This is an extremely damaging situation for the movement, I feel, because it's taking time away from such important work. I have a question. Allison, this is Craig Hansen. We've 
been on the on the sidewalks together in front of a, a Kufi event. My question to you is, what you're appealing to is human rights. How do you talk to Christian Zionists who believe that you're fighting against God? See, the land belongs to the Jews. They see the similarity between the nation state of Israel and Joshua coming in and cleansing out the land. How do you deal with that? Because talking about human rights doesn't seem to work with that group. You know, that's a question I should let Chuck Carlson answer. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Craig wants to hear from you. He's already heard from me, so... One thing that we, however, that we've done is we have uh, tried to go to the church groups that are not Zionist by the nature of their theology, but are traditional. And we are seeing that the greatest reaction against Christian Zionists coming from church groups such as the uh, Lutheran Church, ECLA, and uh, most recently the Church of Christ, and also the Methodist Church and uh, some one of the Presbyterian orders, PCUSA, where these people are actually recognizing the difference between Christianity and Christian Zionism. So that's a problem we found with Christian Zionism is that the people in the churches that practice it are the last ones who want to be changed. So I'll let you respond to that from whatever experience you've had, because I know Craig wants to hear from you, not from me. No, I mostly write articles book and speak, and I'm not really the organizer myself, so I did actually vigil outside a Presbyterian church one time just with about, I believe, with two other people just because I was so outraged at the stand they were taking that I wanted to inform the members about Palestine, so I have done that on my own. I find that in general when people learn the actual facts about what's going on in Palestine, about the misery and the tragedy, that in a great many cases, that changes their views significantly. Even people that, you know, perhaps attend a Christian Zionist church and may have come up with these beliefs about dispensationalism, for example, there are studies that show and, and anecdotes that show when they actually have seen what's going on and learned what's going on, that changes their views more than the theological discussion. I saw a very interesting article on that and wrote something based on that article myself. A number of surveys were showing that young Christian Zionists, evangelicals of that persuasion, were learning about what was going on in Palestine, and many were starting to talk about solidarity with Palestinians. There was a survey of evangelical leaders where only, I think it was only 30% voted in favor of Israel. I personally have met some individuals who had been there, saw it firsthand, and that had changed their views. So it's very interesting that sometimes when they get the actual facts about this, about what's going on, and really learn it, I think if they actually saw, if our media actually showed people what was going on, I think that would change many of the, the actions by that segment as well as the rest of the population. You know, for example, the, the sensational belief that all Jews have to return to Israel and that will bring the second coming, etc. Even if they maintain that belief, which I believe most theologians don't really feel is justified, but even if they retain that theological belief, when they know what's going on, it is very frequently they will say, well, this is not the way Jesus taught, this is not the way God would do it, that, I, I, I still believe that, but this is, 
is not the way it's going to happen. That might happen in 500 years or 1,000 years or some future time, but this is not it. I think you hit upon something very important, Allison, when you talked about the youth, and that's the experience that we have trying to talk to people in Christian Zionist churches. It's a waste of time if they have gray hair like I do. <laughs> well, Allison, we want to really thank you. This was uh, an eye-opener. We wish the best of luck. I know you're going to be continuing on because you've got the spirit to broadcast this important message. And we in the movement have looked up to what you're doing and the people that you are reaching that a lot of us can't reach. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm trying. And, you know, fortunately, many of us all over the country are trying very hard and many people all, all over the world. It's an extremely, wonderfully diverse movement for justice of multitudes of very principled, committed people. And in the end, I just think we all will prevail. So thank you for having me on your show. Ifamericansnew.org. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small. Think big and press on towards the straight gate.